0: Oh store and eternity alone hanging by a thread with a pit of hell in view but in the dark, the light broke through and the cross changed it all making it all brand new nothing left to fear Jesus was the answer to life's greatest danger. now all trouble failed and we're standing boldly before the throne of grace and jesus still is the answer these still
1: If you would, remain standing for the reading of God's inherent, inspired, infallible, authoritative, perfect word. And um, so I'd ask you to turn, if you would please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 7 to 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You may be seated. And before we pray, I'm going to ask our summer interns if you would come on up. And uh, we're going to be praying for them. We have five committed young people who love the Lord. And uh, they are excited about ministering here for the summer at Grace Church. And this is uh, Audrey Hull and Jasmine Sanchez and Skylar Draper, Aiden Van Eck, and Hugo Menendez. And uh, they are so eager to begin tomorrow. And uh, they'll be under the uh, leadership and direction of, of uh, Randy Young, uh, Young uh, Randy, oh, that was a brain, Randy Clark and, um, and Connor Hass. And so we're thankful for that. And uh, so join with me now as uh, we pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your uh, amazing, incredible care for us, that you have loved us so much that you gave your son, your only son, to die on the cross for us, the one that uh, we would reject apart from the work of your spirit who draws us to you, the one, Father, who died in our place, the one who literally became sin for us, that we might know the very righteousness of God. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, that you have chosen those who would believe before the very foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before you. Lord, we're so grateful for that. And we're grateful, Father, for those who have chosen to love you and serve you with a whole heart. Thank you, especially this morning for Hugo and Skylar and Aiden and Jasmine and Audrey. Lord, we pray your blessing upon them as they embark upon this summer of ministry for your sake and for your glory and for your purpose. Lord, may you give them great joy as they serve you, even in the small things. Lord, may they see your hand and so rejoice before you. Lord, we pray that you would give them fruit and much fruit, the fruit of righteousness that they might indeed glorify you in their work. And so, Father, we commit them to you. We thank you for them and pray your blessing upon them. And, Lord, we again thank you for your grace to us, for the redemption that we have through the blood of our Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you lavish upon us every moment of our lives, things that we see and rejoice in, things that we don't even know about. And yet you care for us and you guard us and you guide us and you protect us and you lead us into paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Lord, we thank you for these things today. And we pray that you now would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might know what is the hope to which you have called us, that we might receive with great joy the preaching of your word, the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that we might see your hand even in the fellowship that we have in the bond of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We pray, Lord, that in our hearts and in this world that you indeed would rule with authority and dominion for you and you alone are the name that is above every name. And so we worship you today, and we ask your blessing on all that we would do in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: good in us is Christ working his uh, life out through us. And we know that when all is complete, we will be able to say it was not us, but Christ in us carrying us forward. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who sustains and holds and keeps us. And we pray that you would continue your work in our hearts right now as we hear your word. Lord, would you open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning? And it's in your name we pray. Amen.
2: Continuing today in the context of 2 Thessalonians chapter two, we'll be in verses seven to twelve, in the idea of the coming delusion, and the idea of drawing near to Christ and delighting in His Word of Truth. I once uh, drove a church bus full of young adults up to a retreat in the mountains, and the nearer we got to the retreat center the foggier it got. The fog was really rolling in, uh, really heavy. And so I started to drive more carefully, of course, and the further up the hill we went, the thicker the fog got, to the point that I could only see maybe two or three feet in front of the bus. And I was thinking to myself, wow, this is not just me. The lives of everyone on the bus are in my hands. And so, yeah, there was an element of fear. Like, I want to make sure I stay on the road. Well, what I did is I kept following the illuminated lines on the road in front of me that would lead me to my destination. I trusted that they would lead me to my destination. The fog was real. The fear was real. The lines didn't lie. I was glad for the lines in the road and my headlights I was glad for experienced mountain drivers on board with me. But the fog it was like the deception and delusion that can set in on us when, when falsehood and deception distorts reality. And there's no way around it. Where we live, it's interesting that a lot of the deceptions that we would face here in America are, are not the same in other countries because they're not accepted. But there's no way around it. Christians in America are being—I don't know any other way to put it—deceived into denying obvious truth and reality. We talk about spotting wolves, and and you know, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, "Savage wolves will come in from among your own selves and not spare the flock." And the only way to get past that is to cling to the only perfect part of life, which is God and his word. Our wedding anniversary is June 1st. We just had uh, celebrated 31 years of marriage, and I always like to take Angela away for a little getaway. And what turns out, and and this has only happened in in the last few years, because we've had 31 years of getting away on our anniversary it now coincides, June 1st, now coincides with the first day of Pride Month. And so the getaways we are now experiencing are are kind of flavored by a collision between love for Jesus and others and the delusion that is infecting the minds of many. We live in a time where sex and gender are now said to be confused and fluid, where we can't even define what a man or a woman is objectively. And we are told to listen and to learn and to lean into people detached from reality. And we're told that we need to pretend that they have a a truth that's theirs. And that even if it runs diametrically opposed to God, you must accept it. It ranges from the delusional to the strongly delusional to the absolutely delusional. Just recently in California, we legislated that a bee is technically now a fish. California's 3rd District Court of Appeals ruled that bees are fish to protect bees now. I'm all for that, but it's interesting. Wow, protect a bee by calling it what it's not. They leaned on a 1980 ruling that said that a terrestrial snail was a fish. So the judge says, well, if a snail can be a fish that walks on the land, a bee can be a fish. They also said that a previous judge that said a bee isn't a fish was wrong to say that. But here's the thing, and and this is where all I can say is as I'm thinking this through, if, if we can agree to, to suspend reality over here and deny objective, obvious truth and claim that everyone gets to make up their own reality and truth, and if that you are willing to suspend reality in one area, who is to say that you will hold to objective truth in the biblical realm? Today, many people are saying that clear-cut biblical truth is not what it seems and that God didn't mean what he clearly said about the Bible itself, about male and female, about elders, about ethics, about morality, about sexuality, and a host of other things. And the historical problem that runs rampant among Christians is we're easily frightened or even intimidated into accepting things, and we get agitated over ideas, we get shaken in our minds, we fall into fear and following lies with relative ease at times, and what that leads to is losing hope and losing peace that Jesus grants us. I hear from so many people who are burdened for their loved ones caught up in lies, what Paul was aiming to do here is to strengthen the church to love truth. That's my aim today, that as we have gone through First Thessalonians, as we made our way through that letter, beloved, those beloved of God in Christ, love Christ and fellow Christians and all people as, as they serve Christ and Long for his return. And now we're in 2 Thessalonians, to remain steadfast with the truth as the day draws nearer and times get tougher. Paul kept encouraging the church to encourage one another. He kept telling them, encourage one another with these words, that the Lord would come for them. But... They had gotten agitated, they had gotten troubled, they had gotten shaken by someone in the church claiming to have a letter from Paul and teaching that they had missed Christ's return and that they were now in the day of the Lord's judgment and they were being robbed of their peace and their hope and Paul is aiming to restore their peace with truth to jumpstart their hope. And he says quite clearly, and we see this in this passage, and we've been going along in this context for a while now, Jesus will return after two events happen. First, there's a great rebellion or apostasy that will happen. Secondly, the man of lawlessness will sit in the temple of God and blasphemously say he is the only one that deserves worship. The people will actually believe it, and worship the man of lawlessness. But this passage also tells us that the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, will at some point stop holding back the fullness of wickedness. Like if you think it's bad now, it's going to get worse, and there will come a time when God will stop holding back the fullness of wickedness and allow a specific Arch enemy of Christ to come to power. And the existence of a restrainer here should be so comforting for believers. It's like, wow, God is sovereign over everything. He will not allow the man of lawlessness to rise until the time He has decreed from before all eternity. Like God determines when the restrainer is removed. And by his hand, as Ephesians 1.11 says, all things come to pass. That God is good, that you can trust him to preserve his own forever by his will. It's just like Jesus said in John 6, My Father, who gave my people to me, this is his will, that I would lose none of all that he has given me and will raise them up on the last day. He will do it. That you you might begin to lose hope, you might begin to lose even your peace as a Christian that has been granted by God, but you need to know, and this is what today's passage is going to help us see, that God's sovereign control over everything, that he is the one that is ordaining the signs and the times of Jesus' return, that you can trust his sovereignty, that you can trust that he will sustain you as you wait for the return of the king. As we've gone through this chapter so far, it began with a request. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Reject lies. Resist fear. There is a man of lawlessness coming, and there will be a rebellion. The rebellion is present, but it will be increasing, and there's going to be a revealing in the future of who this man of lawlessness is. But right now there is a restraining going on, and it's ongoing, And it's from God. God's doing it. And now in this context, we see in verses 7 to 12, there is a present deception and there will be some destruction in the future. And we see a coming delusion. The the fog is, is rolling in. And it's due to people being drawn away and delighting in wickedness. And this is all so that we would not let the present deception or the coming delusion alarm us, but that we would draw near to Christ, that we would delight in His word of truth. Now, there is a current deception, though. And verse 7 it tells us that the mystery, it's a really interesting way to put it, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That present lawlessness is now operating under the governor of the restrainer but still operating this ungodliness that runs rampant like a runaway train this mystery of lawlessness and usually in the bible a mystery is something unknown and you can only know it if god reveals it to you and this the mystery of lawlessness very unusual wording it found in the Thanksgiving Psalms of the Dead Sea Scrolls, when it speaks of the mystery of evil. Mystery is, is what is secret, what is hidden. You can't find out by your own efforts. But in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's usually about a mystery that now is known, that now has been revealed by God, like the purpose of God in salvation, how the gospel was not known until God was pleased to reveal it in Christ. But this usage of mystery is different. What this is telling us is there are still unknown mysteries about sin that we cannot know. You can't fathom the depths of sin. You can't figure out why it exists. You can't figure out how it works. Think about the sin you struggle with in your own life and and you're like, "I, I I don't get it. And Paul is saying as he writes that the mystery of lawlessness is at work. As he writes... It's, it's, a, it's at work as I speak. And it's not ours to fully know. But it's in operation. Lawlessness connected to the man of lawlessness. He has not yet been revealed. The restrainer is, is governing. But there's also actions being governed by Satan. According to the last day's teaching in the Bible, it started with the ministry of Jesus in his death and resurrection. that According to the New Testament, the last days began when Jesus appeared and his death and resurrection happened. Peter preached that in Acts chapter 2. We see it here in verse 7. Paul is saying the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We are living in the end times. John put it this way. The spirit of the Antichrist is in the world already. That lawlessness is already in operation. That But the one who embodies it has not yet come onto the scene. It's it's a mystery. It says that only he who now restrains it, the Holy Spirit, the masculine article there refers to the person of the Holy Spirit, will do so until he is out of the way, when the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air. God knows. God is in charge of this. Daniel 2 put it this way, to God belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. One day, the Holy Spirit will cease His work of restraining evil. And you think, well, but it's it's bad today. But all-out evil is being held back that restraint will be in place until the Antichrist is revealed. And so you see present deception. And what it leads to is destruction. The fate of the lawless one. In verse 8, it says the lawless one, the one who acts contrary to the will of God, will be revealed at a certain time, uncovered, exposed, unveiled. And, And Satan, promoting the spirit of lawlessness is allowed then to fulfill his desire to imitate God by indwelling a man who will, who will do things that God does. it will be counterfeit things, but people will believe that it's God doing it. But here's the hope for the Christian. It says that the Lord Jesus will slay, literally kill, the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. That should be like your favorite verse in the Bible. Jesus is going to kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He's going to render him inactive. He's going to render him inoperative. He's going to bring him to nothing to put out of commission. There'll be a manifestation of the striking, splendorous glory of God, and the Greeks used to use this of the glorious manifestation of the gods, but here the one true God, at the divinely decreed moment, he will remove his restraint and his plan for the consummation of evil and the judgment of the day of the Lord will happen. The Bible tells us that death is in God's hands, and, and this man and the false prophet will be cast alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone and he will be eternally separated from God at the coming of Christ. Paul is leaning on Old Testament imagery here, especially on Isaiah 11, verse 4, that prophesies of the righteous rule of the Messiah, of the servant of God, particularly his just judgment. The Old Testament imagery expresses the power of God, that he's going to kill him by the breath of his mouth. Like, Like the song says, one little word shall fell him that one word shall quickly slay him Isaiah 11:4 says but with the righteousness with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked this is a biblical teaching the breath of god is a fierce weapon according to the old testament In in Exodus 15, at the blast of your nostrils, O God, the waters piled up. Speaking of the Red Sea. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Job put it this way, by the breath of God they perish. By the blasts of his anger they are consumed. The psalmist said, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. In Isaiah 30, it says, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick, rising smoke, his lips are full of fury, and his tongue, like a devouring fire, his breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction. The place on the jaws of the peoples, a bridle that leads astray what Paul is leaning on here as he says these words. Revelation 19 tells us that from the mouth of Christ comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh a name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Lord Jesus will personally come to earth to slay, to kill, to overthrow the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. Abolish him by the appearance and the splendor of his powerful coming in judgment. When the Lord appears, the rebel will be destroyed. He will put the lawless one to death and will immediately put a stop to this diabolical deception program. There is a present deception and a future destruction, and it's it's due to the falsehood of the lawless one. The present lawlessness is is directed by Satan who deceives and blinds people to the truth. That his present efforts are, are fostering unhindered lawlessness but they're being frustrated now by God's restraint but at a certain point in time the lawless one is going to be let loose to do his worst verse 9 tells us the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of satan with all power and false signs and wonders literally counterfeit signs and wonders leading to a lie leading miracle doing miracles leading to a lie that the source and cause of of the false miracles will be Satan. We know that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Expect him to show himself to be a, a counterfeit savior who can do signs and wonders like Pharaoh's magicians. Important warning for the church. His coming will be a satanic parody of of God with all kinds of impressive fanfare and imitating Christ. And it will be false and deceptive. And the nature of deception is that you think you're absolutely right. These will lead people astray to destruction. Destruction. Those who have closed their minds to the truth of the gospel, which alone can save them, and they open themselves up to receive nonsense. People run with the devil and reject the truth. And this, for those of us that are so burdened by our loved ones who have have gone after lies and falsehood. This is hard for us because there can be a point when a person rejects the gospel to the point where they can no longer turn away from the path leading to destruction. Hebrews 6 talks about it. And Satan is the root of the lawless one's deception. And what he will do is he will co opt supernatural means of signs and wonders the very phenomena that God used in laying the foundation of the church will be used for deceit. Verse 10 says it's going to be with all wicked deception, literally all deceitfulness, all wrongdoing, a combination of deceit and unrighteousness. There's a very aggressive power that will bring this about. But who is it for? Who will be affected? The verse tells us this will be for those who are perishing. That his influence, and and for those of you that are sometimes fearful of, oh no, am I really a Christian or not? His influence is limited to deceiving the unsaved who will believe his lies. They will perish in deception because there will be this Satan-imposed blindness to the truth of the saving gospel that they They cannot see, as as 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ. The motivation of the lawless one is to, to deceive. And this is, he'll bring every sort of evil that deceives. Literally every deceit of unrighteousness. Every sort of deceit. That unrighteousness produces. And they will go upon those who are perishing. They will be vulnerable to trickery. They they will confuse unrighteousness with righteousness. They will attribute deity to the lawless one. They will say he is God. But why does it happen? Why does it happen? The, The verse tells us. Put your eyes on that verse. Why? Again, Verse 10, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. That's why loving the truth here literally means to receive it gladly, to, to welcome it into your life. Like 1 Thessalonians 2.13 said that you, you welcome the word of God. Literally, talk about putting out the welcome mat for the word of God but there will be a blindness due to refusal to love the truth and so be saved. They had no positive committal to the truth, to the gospel. Maybe there was an indifference. Maybe there was an antagonism. But nonetheless, they opted out of receiving God's salvation. They were blinded to the light. They could not see it. Daniel 7 says, He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time and a half a time. We know that the God of this world, Satan, blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they do not love Christ. They do not want Christ. They do not care about Christ. They do not believe in Christ. They will not yield to Christ. They will not bend the knee to Christ. The hearts break. This is a warning to those on the path that leads to destruction and disaster. But if you're a believer today, there is so much hope and peace because this, verses 7 to 12, is overshadowed by a beautiful, glorious, eloquent statement of truth in verses 13 to 17, that this will not happen to believers. If you have received the love of the truth so as to be saved, Jesus will not slay you with the breath of his mouth. Instead, he will comfort you with the words of his mouth. The loving of the truth so as to be saved means you love Jesus as he has revealed in the word, you hold to the truth, you you believe the gospel, you believe reality, you, you believe what Christians believe because the Bible plainly teaches it so you cling to it. This is why you shouldn't mess with Scripture. I mean, it's, it's simple the way God has laid it out. If, if God's word says to do something, do it. If God's word says don't do something, don't do it. If God's word says to seek something, seek it. If God's word says don't seek something, don't seek that. If God's word says something is good, rejoice in it. If God's word says something is bad, reject it. But don't make God's word bend to your desires. Yield yourself to the will of God and His perfect word. God meant everything He said; it will not change. You can be sure. And if you're a Christian, you know what it looks like to love the truth and so be saved. You know what it looks like because you look around. You keep seeing little glimpses, glorious gospel truth, where you look around and say, God is changing my friends and family in Christ. And you look at your own life and you think, wow, sometimes it looks like I'm not progressing so much, but I can see that God has really changed me and I'm being comforted in Christ. We, we know what it looks like to love the truth and so be saved. You welcome it. The example that I have most recently seen of someone who loved the truth so as to be saved, was my friend Bud Dunham. He died recently in Georgia, but he was a part of this church for many years. He got saved at age 63. He walked with Jesus for 20 years, but he got saved at age 63. A lot of you aren't 63 yet. Some of you are saying, but my life is ruined because I haven't gotten married yet, or I didn't get the job I want yet. Or my marriage is not the way I want it to be yet. Or my career is not you know, gone the way I wanted it to go. And I feel like I've just wasted my life and I, nothing's left and I just feel hopeless. And my friend Bud Dunham got saved at age 63. I was watching his funeral via live stream yesterday and tears in my eyes because new friends, since they moved to Georgia five years ago, new friends stood up and said the very same things that we would have said about him if we were at the service he loved Jesus he loved the word of god he loved his beloved francine his wife he loved his kids he loved his grandkids he loved to serve he loved the bible he wore out several bibles over 20 years He loved Luke 8. They read the parable of the sower because it was his favorite passage about the scattered seed, which is the word of God and some is trampled on and some goes on the rocks and some goes in the thorns and then some lands on the good soil. His heart was good soil because God opened his heart to the gospel, drew him to himself, saved him, gave him new life, opened his eyes to see, opened his ears to hear. He loved the truth so as to be saved. He was persevering in the faith. This passage is telling us about a coming delusion due to being drawn away and delighting in wickedness. And it's not about Christians wavering. It's about a coming delusion. Verse 11, strong delusion coming as judgment on sin. Look at verse 11. Maybe the most startling aspect of this passage. Therefore, God sends... Present tense there, future significance. It will be in the future. God sends, referring to a coming period of lawlessness and, and the lawless one's activity, God sends them a strong delusion. Like, like, like Pharaoh's heart getting hardened. You know, Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. We can't figure it out. It happened. But it says that God sends a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. It's like God saying, you, you want that, you got that. And a hard stop here, hard stop. Notice, God will send. God will send. In a strong working of his powerful energy, this is traceable to God, not Satan. God will send a strong delusion so that they would believe what is false. Now, he's he's covering the same ground he's covered in the previous verses. But here, it's traceable to God. And it reemphasizes the fate of those who are rejecting the truth. They deliberately reject God, so God will send them a powerful delusion so they'll believe the lie. And the working of error will be irresistible to them. They will run to it. They're, they're so rebellious, they will, it will be irresistible for them to run to it. But the satanic promise that deceived Eve, the lie that you can be in charge of your own life, that you can be the determiner, will find its ultimate fulfillment in the end time master rebel, and they're going to mistake him and his lies for God and his truth. God will give them over to believe the lie. That should tear at our hearts that there will be people that their only option, because they refuse to love the truth, will be to believe the lie, and they will be defenseless against twisted lies. And God will send judgment to ensure their fate, that there will be this deluding influence so that they will continue to believe what is false. But Why? Look at verse 12. Here's the purpose. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure, they they rejoiced in, they delighted in unrighteousness, wickedness, evil. They will be judged, they will be condemned. they They took pleasure and delighted in evil. They accepted evil as good and a lie as the truth. And here Satan and the Antichrist is being used by God as God's Instruments of judgment. And the ultimate consequence will be condemnation. They refuse to receive the truth of the gospel they chose and loved, wickedness. They cannot blame others. Their sinfully directed delight will be their own downfall. And God will sovereignly seal their fate. for Those who persist in following Satan and his counterfeit. This is all according to God's plan and God's power. The same God of verses 13 to 17 is the same God of verses 7 to 12. Isaiah 66 speaks of the power of God, and, and God says, This is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Romans 9 tells us, There are vessels of destruction prepared beforehand for destruction. The Bible tells us that God's final judgment is sure, and when he speaks his judgment, they will be infallibly in everlasting punishment because they did not run for refuge to Christ by faith alone. If you're not a believer in Jesus, this is not to scare you, but this is powerful motive for a non-Christian to turn to God before the fog of rebellion and delusion becomes thickest and before the point of no return. And only God knows when that is. And, and here's what we know. If you're a Christian, you, being used by God, are being used by God to show the world what a Christian is. It says in 2 Corinthians that God manifests the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place that we go. It's not a perfume we put on. It's something that God just puts through our, our life. But what we read is that those who are being saved consider it a very sweet smell. And those who are perishing, consider it a stench of death. All who habitually reject truth are left to the consequence of their sins. One one person long ago put it this way, the bent of their spirits is toward their sin and God takes off his hand of restraint and removes his hindrances and gives them up unto their own heart's lusts to do the things that are not convenient, and they rush into sins and follies, setting their feet in the paths that go down to the chambers of death. Where men are resolved not to see, the greater the light is that shines about them, the faster they must close their eyes. And it springs from resolution not to see the things invisible and eternal. A love of sin, a resolved continuance in the practice of it, the effectual power of vicious inclinations in opposition to all that is good, they are determined that there will be no God to call them to account. sad state of the loss that tears at our hearts is ultimately their own responsibility. And God will confirm them in their evil ways by hardening them to the truth that they rejected and they were persuaded by lies. Christian, I want you to think about your life and what drags you down in life. There's a lot of things. But I want you to think of the hope you have in Christ, the peace that goes beyond all understanding. And, and think with me about how God keeps you and that you are a, a verse 13 person. Verse 13 says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And no Christian reads those words and says, because I'm better than everyone. Every true Christian says, I'm not good enough for that. I don't deserve that. I deserve something that's the opposite of that. Christ is coming and We're being told in this passage, don't be agitated by fear. Don't be disturbed by lies. God is in control. Confidently serve him now. Serve him with every ounce of strength you have. I know there's probably some within the reach of these words that might know someone who is inching towards delusion. we don't really know. Only God knows the condition of people's hearts. How might you know if one is inching towards delusion? Are they questioning the truth over and over again? And by the way, the Bible can handle itself and protect itself, but are they questioning the truth to the point where they're always accusing God? Are they approving the lie to the point that they're now offering those lies to others? Are they taking pleasure in evil such that they think it's actually good? We know that Jesus will slay the lawless one in the future. But what a Christian needs to know is Jesus has sealed his own for eternity. You are kept. You're not deceived. You're freed. You need to be watchful of being deceived, but you have been freed. If Jesus said, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. If you've received the love of the truth, what does that mean? It means you welcomed the gospel truth. The only way to you know God savingly, as he has shown in his revealed written word, you know and love God, because he first loved you, you believe that Jesus died in your place as your substitute, you believe that he died, you believe that he was buried, you believe that he rose from the dead, you believe that he appeared to many, you believe that he now ascended to the Father and now reigns at the right hand of the Father, and you believe that he is coming back for his church. You know and love God because he first loved you, and he initiated the relationship, and If you know him, you'll love him. And there are some of you that might fear. And this passage is not for you to fear. If you fear that you have denied Christ, you fear that maybe you're the one that's being described. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, and you want to be saved, you will be saved. God wants you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you should take a Bible verse and just think about it over and over and pray it to Jesus. If you want to be saved, you'll be saved. You're not alone, Christian. Jesus is with you. Oftentimes we think our way into a crazy moment of thinking we're not a believer when we are a believer. And the only way I know to get out of that is to just go and do something the Bible says is good to help someone else. Get out of your own mind because your own mind is driving you crazy. One of the primary protections is being a part of the church. It's not about us and Jesus alone. Bonhoeffer put it this way sin wants to have you for itself. But into the community, you were called. And the call was not meant for you alone. In the community, called to the cross, you struggle and you pray. We work these things out together. Luther said, if I die, then I am not alone in death. But if I suffer, the fellowship suffers with me. We bear one another's burdens, even the burden of confusion at times. But we're not delusional. We're doers of the word. We love the words of Christ's mouth and love the truth so as to be saved and love righteousness. I want you to know, God doesn't give us this passage today to talk about all the end times and get confused and cause us to somehow you know cower in fear because of all the problems in our life or in the world, but this is to inspire us to good hope by grace and godly living. A true knowledge of God is going to lead to some experience of God that shows you've been changed and and you don't have a hyper-curiosity in all the end time things or peripheral things, but you have a blessed assurance, a comfort knowing you are Verse 13 to 17 people. You're not verses 7 to 12 people. And that Jesus isn't going to slay you with the breath of his mouth. He's going to comfort you with the words of his mouth. He's going to say, fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's going to say, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Do not let your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So that you draw near to Christ, that you delight in his word. And I know it is easy to read this today and, and want to warn everyone and we ought to rescue the perishing. But it is not to be used as a scare tactic, to threaten believers to be better, or use as a club to bash unbelievers. It's to be helpful, not harmful. Sadly, this, this passage has been used for centuries, contrary to its stated purpose, to tell Christians to be better. It creates alarm among those who love Christ. Any application of this that leads to a shaken mind or alarm among Christians violates the context. What we should do is make sure that we don't let the unclear parts overshadow the abundantly clear comfort that's being offered to believers in Christ here. The context points to it. Yes, be careful, but don't miss the express purpose for which the Lord has revealed such things to us. It's to unravel their confusion. It's to comfort their hearts. Yes, it's telling us, be careful. As the lawlessness increases, because there will come a day, yes, when the thickest fog of delusion sets in, with no chance of escape, but don't go away from this thinking, well, God is such a high-demand God. No, God is not a high-demand God. He is a loving and holy God, and we must not be a high-demand church. We must follow Jesus fully, with grace and truth, humble and gentle, love Jesus, love fellow Christians, love all people fiercely, and hold the truth firmly. That's the parts of a healthy church and a healthy life, love and truth. He is the judge, yes, and he will judge, yes. But no, you don't have to be perfect to come to him or remain in him. And no, you don't have to tell everybody else they're wrong. He's perfect. He sovereignly saves sinners. Just yield and surrender and be saved. Believe it, and then as you live your life, don't rejoice in unrighteousness. Rejoice in the truth. Lord, we thank you that while we see present deception and coming delusion and destruction because people just get drawn away and delight in evil, we see the fog getting thicker. Thank you, Lord, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you, Lord, we have nothing to fear. Thank you, Lord, that we are free in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we are not delusional, but we can be doers of the word by your strength. That we can draw near to you, Christ. We can delight in your word. All for your glory. We praise you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God has given protection to the church in the word and in the practices that he has instituted for the church to do, including this table. I just want to remind you we have different cups now. You need to undo the bread part first, and then after we do the bread, then you flip it over and open up the cup part. But this is for the church. You don't have to be a member of this church. You need to be a member of the worldwide body of Christ and believe the gospel truth, and so as to be saved, love Christ and his truth. And Jesus, instituted this table to remind us of the truth, to remind us of his love, of his grace, of his mercy, of his forgiveness. And this table is for, for true believers that sincerely want to please the Lord and to live for his glory and serve him. And Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed took bread and he broke it and said this is my body which is for you this was to be done on an ongoing basis by the church this is to be done remembering that jesus died for our sins and it's just a misnomer to think well i've sinned so much this week so i can't partake of the table no whoever sinned the most run to the bread and the cup we all know that we fall short of the glory of god and we all know there is forgiveness in christ Jesus said this my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me remember what I did for you and after supper he took the cup he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood he said do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me remembering Jesus remembering what he did loving him who first loved us Jesus told his followers, drink of it, all of you. Lord, we thank you that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, in obedience to you, we proclaim your death until you come again. And our hearts sincerely cry, come Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.
0: And we are going to close by singing the final verse of Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. With every breath. With every breath I long.
2: Roman's 11:33 says, "O, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever." Before I pray, I want to invite Andrew and Aaron McNeil up. Andrew and Aaron and Lydia and Nathan and James McNeil are dearly beloved friends and family to us, and Andrew served faithfully as a co-laborer in the gospel on staff with us for the past seven years, and now is moving on to some doctoral studies, and they're going to be in France for the next three months. We're going to miss you guys so much, and we love you guys so much, and they're eagerly anticipating baby number four in October, so they'll be there three months, and we just want to pray for them before they go. They're leaving tonight at eight o'clock. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that we could gather. Thank you, Lord, that we become beloved to one another because you have loved us so deeply and dearly. Thank you for the McNeils. We love them so much and we pray that you would direct their hearts into your love and the steadfastness of Christ, that you would give them endurance and encouragement through the scriptures and increase their hope. Uh, May the season in France be one of deepening of their faith in you. The bonds as a family, and we pray that you would lead them and guide them and protect them and provide for them all for your magnificent glorious until we meet again. And we praise you, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor, with me in the calm, with me in the storm.